Well, turn with me to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5, and we'll use this as sort of our jumping off point this morning. 1 Peter 5, and I'd like to read verse 8. First Peter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. This is your first time. There are four basic places that combat training takes place. How do you learn to fight if you're in the armed services? The first basic place it takes place is in the classroom. At West Point, for example, cadets learn the theory and the practice of war for the protection of our nation. Second place it takes place is in boot camp. In boot camp, beginner soldiers are put through paces and exercises and training to simulate a real combat situation and to learn some basic tactics. The third place that combat training takes place is on a deployment before entering combat, maybe in a briefing room or even in a tent where attack. The combat training takes place in the middle of a battle. When a commanding officer is shouting out instructions because the enemy is right around the corner. Blood is going to be spilled on one or both sides. The reality of staring your enemy in the face is seconds away. You're already taking fire. Casualties are happening. In the spiritual battle that Peter describes here in 1 Peter 5, 8, guess which one we're in spiritually. That's right. We're in the fourth situation. And yes, we need classroom training. That's kind of what we're doing today. But the fact is, is that the world and the church of Jesus Christ and you are taking fire right now from Satan. If you didn't know that, now you do. If you don't, he's winning. Satan is the mortal enemy of God. He is the mortal enemy of God's people. He is prowling around like a roaring lion. He is your adversary. Greek word that means your opponent, your accuser. I would so much rather preach Christ. I would rather preach his glory, all the joys involved with being a Christian. But there is a point where it's appropriate to know your enemy, to be wary of the schemes of the evil one, of the devil, of Satan. And part of preaching Christ is knowing our enemy. Part of preaching Christ is knowing Christ's enemy. And so to that end, I'd like to spend some weeks looking at Satan and his schemes so that you can understand the battle that's waging all around you and, even more importantly, so that you don't become inadvertently part of the problem because Satan is a deceiver and he likes to use the church against the church. Now, this series is going to be topical in nature. Uh, Normally, our practice is just to work verse by verse through books of the Bible and we understand that. But for this study, we need to really consider many dozens of places in Scripture. So we'll have every week kind of a home-based text. Today is 1 Peter 5.8. But I want to do a couple of things here before we really get rolling this morning. First of all, I want to make you some promises about this preaching series because it's unusual. And so the first promise is, is that our soberness will turn to joy. Our soberness will turn to joy. This series is going to be like a B-52 that has its engines on fire and it's screaming toward the ground and seems like a crash is going to happen. But then it pulls up and the fires go out and it drops its payload and wins the day. So that's how the series will be. It's going to feel like we're going down for a while, but we will pull up. The second promise I'd like to make to you, there will be overlap and repetition, and that's by design. That is by design to have overlap and repetition. I am like your commanding officer saying, when we walk down this street, we're going to be taking fire from the north. Which side from the north? Which side from the north? Which side from the north? So that you know where to look and you know where to be cautious. There's a third promise I'm going to make, and I didn't want to make this one. I wasn't going to until it happened to me when I started studying. The third promise is there will be personal conviction involved. There will be personal conviction involved because one of the tactics of the enemy is deception. And so 
Part of this deception includes attempting to convince Christians to act in a way that is contrary to obedience to the word of God. So there will be personal conviction. Here's a fourth promise. For those who do not know Christ, I promise that I will be praying for you to see how utterly helpless and unarmed you are against the evil one, against Satan. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If you don't know Christ, there is an evil, wicked being infinitely more powerful than you doing everything in his power to keep your eyes shut so that you don't know Christ. And if you will come to that knowledge that Satan has you in his crosshairs, then perhaps you will dive toward the cross. You will dive toward Christ and change sides spiritually. I promise that God will answer that prayer. I promise that God will make you his child instead of what the Apostle John said, that all non-Christians are, that is, children of the devil. Now, I'll make you a fifth promise. For those of you who do know Christ, The ultimate outcome of listening, of learning, of taking in this information like your life depends on it will have two results in your life. The first result is that it will crush any sense of self-confidence that you have. It should crush your confidence in yourself. And the second result is that it should elevate and just heighten your confidence in the power of God. You should be crushed and God should be elevated. In fact, toward that end, I know that in our congregation, we have everyone from very mature believers who have walked with the Lord for decades and decades to brand new believers who have been with the Lord for days or weeks or months even. And so I don't want to accidentally terrify any new believers. Toward that end, I want to give you a few truths up front so you don't have to wait in anguish for a few weeks and then week seven of our series go, why didn't you tell me that in the first place? So let me give you four comforting truths. These are ones you can take home with you right now to know up front. I don't want you to wait to hear these. First one, the cross of Christ has won your eternal victory. The cross of Christ has won your eternal victory. Yes, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion. And yes, if you're spiritually unaware, if you you have a lack of seriousness about this, he may cause damage, but he'll never sink your ship. Romans 8, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 1 John 5.13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you may hope, but that you may know. There's a second comforting truth. Satan only operates in God's sovereign purposes. Satan only operates in God's sovereign purposes We'll spend a whole other message on this particular topic. But there's never a sense in which God wins some and Satan wins some. There's never a sense in which God, you know, is, is kind of, you know, two for three. That he's doing pretty good, but not all the way. There's never a question as to outcomes. Satan does what God allows him to do for his own overarching redemptive plan. This doesn't mean we're not wary. It doesn't mean we're not watchful. But because of God's plan with his use of Satan, we are to be wary, but understand that God is using him. And when God is done with him, he will throw him away. Here's a third truth. This is an easy one. Satan is doomed, period. Satan is doomed, and he has been from the moment he rebelled. And so we have that to look forward to. Satan doesn't want to go to hell But that is his destiny. Revelation 20 verse 10 says the devil will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, often called in the New Testament hell. Contrary to the popular opinion, hell is not Satan's home, but it will be. It will be. One more comforting truth. God has given you spiritual weapons against Satan and his schemes. God has given you spiritual weapons against Satan and his schemes. Ephesians 6 Beginning in verse 10, lists what Paul calls the whole armor of God. Spiritual weaponry which defends against the flaming darts of the evil one, he calls them. We'll spend a whole message just on that incredibly encouraging text in a few weeks. But now for this morning, I want to just do almost a Bible study. 
I want to start to help us to get to know our enemy, and I'm just going to do this by asking and answering some questions. We'll do five questions, and I'll do these slowly enough you can get them. First question, is Satan real? Second question we'll do is, where did he come from? The third question we'll do is, what was his sin? Fourth question, what is he like? And it's sort of similar to that, our fifth question, what are his names? And so we'll start with the first question, is Satan real? Yes. The second question is, where did he come from? All right. I wish you could just take my word for it, but I am aware, either here in this room or online, this may be the first message you've ever heard me preach, and this may be really weird for you. Wow, I thought we were going to hear about Christ uh, today. But if this is the first message you've ever heard me preach, you don't have a basis to believe me. You have no basis to trust me. So how do we know that Satan is real? How do we know this? Could we know it through philosophy, through logic? You can't prove the existence of Satan by mere philosophical reasoning alone. You can't disprove his existence either. The undisputed presence of evil in the world does kind of lead us to believe that there may be someone who started it all, an evil that had a beginning. But really, the only way you could know of the existence of Satan is if someone who knows him personally throughout history and knows all things about him gives testimony as to his existence. Even better, if this someone who knows Satan also knows all things and created all things, including Satan, and has written this knowledge in a form that we can understand, then we have a reliable source to know that Satan exists. And that source, of course, is the living word of God. I'm not going to spend a lot of time defending the inerrancy and the authority and the inspiration, the perfection of Scripture is the very Word of God Himself. I don't have time to do that. Let me just say this. If you choose to believe that the Bible, the Word of God, is errant, is unauthoritative, is uninspired, and is imperfect, then congratulations. You have just fallen for the very first deception that Satan ever perpetuated on this earth. And so we will believe the word of God. It's our only source of information about Satan. It's the only one we need. And it's from that bird's eye view of eternal God himself, then listening to what the scriptures say say about Satan, that's our only option. And it is the best and the only one. So from scripture, very briefly, I want to just give you three lines of evidence that Satan exists. This is very simple. The first line of evidence is the Old Testament evidence. Old Testament evidence. The easiest thing for you to do is read the Old Testament. By the time you get to the end of Malachi, you'll say, yep, Satan exists. But let me give you a couple of examples. But first of all, kind of big picture, the Old Testament never tries to convince us of the existence of Satan. It never does that. In the same way that the Old Testament never tries to convince us of the existence of God. It just assumes the existence of God. How does the Old Testament begin? In the beginning, you can do it. Wow, in the beginning, there we go. Yeah, the existence of God is assumed. The existence of Satan is assumed. But there are some direct evidences. The entire book of Job, Job's tragedy and his ultimate triumph, this is just the earthly outworking of the invisible battle between God and Satan is revealed in the first two chapters of Job. In fact, if you started in Job chapter 3 and went all the way through the end of Job 42 and you didn't know about God and Satan in that conversation, you get to the end and go, that made no sense whatsoever. Isaiah 14 describes the king of Babylon. Ezekiel 28 describes the king of Tyre. Both descriptions defy mere human leaders and really, in fact, serve to explain the fall of Satan himself. Or consider Psalm 106, verses 36 and 37. Quote, they served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. What does that say? It says that idols have behind them demonic powers who serve Satan's rule. First Chronicles 21 tells us that Satan moved King David to enact a sinful census of Israel as a show of pride. Zechariah chapter 3, we see that Satan is pictured as a hater of Israel and deeply desires her destruction. Zechariah 3, beginning in verse 1, says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. 
Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? In other words, isn't Israel my nation that I rescued? And so if you are of the theological bent that says that Israel as a nation will never again exist, congratulations, you agree with Satan, according to Zechariah 3. What's the whole plot of the Old Testament? The entire plot of the Old Testament is the beginning of undoing the problem of the Garden of Eden. That's what the plot is. In the Garden of Eden, Satan brought sin into the world to the hearts of men. And a lot of our Old Testament books wouldn't even make sense without the existence of Satan and this terrible influence. Second line of evidence that he exists, the New Testament evidence. New Testament evidence. I'll spend a second on this. 19 of the 27 New Testament books mention Satan by name. And of the eight that don't mention him, four of them mention demonic powers, which are obviously subservient to Satan. And we don't have to spend a lot of time on the New Testament evidence because speaking of the New Testament, the premier line of evidence, the third one, is the words of Christ himself. The words of Christ himself. Jesus mentions Satan by name 16 times in the Gospels. That's just how many times he calls him Satan. And some of those times, he's having a conversation with Satan. It's a direct conversation. Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Jesus spoke directly to Satan when Peter was being un, uh, unknowingly used by him. And, and Jesus told Peter, get behind me, Satan, right? Jesus knew the very moment that Satan had entered Judas to betray Jesus to the Jewish authorities. John thirteen twenty seven says, then after he, that is Judas, had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Who was he talking to? He was talking to Satan. So if you choose to believe that Satan does not exist, or worse, maybe to act as if he doesn't exist, then Satan has been wildly successful so far. Because that is one of his tactics. He wants you to be unaware of the approaching enemy. It doesn't say in 1 Peter 5, 5, 8 that Satan is a lion that leaps at you. It says he is a lion that prowls. And he does so in secret. He crawls noiselessly on his belly until it's too late and you never saw him coming. Does Satan exist? Yes. Second question about Satan. Where does he come from? Where does he come from? Short answer, God created him. But again, we need to look into that a little bit more. And this is a great text. I want to have you turn with me to the Old Testament, to Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel 28, and no one will judge you if you use your table of contents. It's okay. Ezekiel 28, and while you're finding that, this chapter speaks of God's judgment on a rebellious ruler. And yet there, there are elements to it that transcend any possibility of this being only an earthly ruler or king. These are elements that go into the realm all the way back to the beginning of history and go forward all the way to the end of history. The first 10 verses of Ezekiel 28 pronounce judgments on the king of Tyre. It's a man by the name of King Ethbaal, either the second or the third. Historians differ on that. He ruled from 587 or 585 B.C. rather to 573 B.C. So he's ruling right about at the time that Jerusalem is falling and he's this king of the city of Tyre, just slightly north of Jerusalem, of, of uh, Israel rather. And these first 10 verses reveal that he's proud, he's willful, and he's self-aggrandizing. He even calls himself a god. This king does. But God would bring him to ruin and he would die a violent death. And so e Ezekiel is prophesying about this neighboring king to the north. But then the boundaries just expand and these supernatural variables begin to come into play and it becomes very clear that God has moved beyond the human king to a different ruler altogether. And now the tone changes. This becomes a sad song. It becomes a lament. It becomes a song of grief. It becomes, if I could put it this way, a song of tears. And who is singing the song? It is God. It's God himself. And if you overlay this on the first 10 verses of Ezekiel 28, it would form a whole unit and you would see that God is speaking of King Ethbaal, yes, but more importantly of Satan. That would take longer to go through. But verses 11 through 19 are more obvious Verse 11, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, 
Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. This leader, God is lamenting. Here's his lament. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. This is a a, a leader, a being who used to be wise. He used to be beautiful. You hear how personal this is to God? This isn't just some neighboring king to the north of Israel. This is somebody God knew well. How did he know him well? Verse 13 tells us, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius and topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, emerald and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. In other words, he was in Eden, the garden of God, and God is lamenting at the top of his voice, you are the most beautiful thing I ever made. You are like a diamond. And what's he doing in Eden? Verse 14, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. And let's stop for a minute here in verse 14. We need to take this apart. This ruler was anointed. It means he was given a specific role. He was given a job to do. And what was his job? To be a guardian. To guard and look out for whom? In the Garden of Eden, there are only two choices, Adam and Eve. That's it. He was anointed to guard them, to be the ones that were their helpers. And what is this ruler of verse 14? An anointed guardian cherub. This is an angel of God. And what is the angel of God doing? What sort of, uh, of priority and what sort of privilege does he have? He walks among the stones of fire. What is that speaking of? That is speaking of being able to have complete total access to God at any time, face-to-face friendship. Zechariah 2, verse 5, God says, I will be to her a wall of fire around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. To walk among the fiery stones is to walk with God in perfect communion. And here's the crux of the problem. Verse 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. Now that sin has been found in him due to his own choice, Satan is punished. He's punished immediately. Verse 16. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. And so it seems apparent that after the fall of Satan, or rather the fall of Satan happened sometime after creation, but before Genesis 3, where Satan tempted Eve. By the way, why was Eve so familiar to speak to Satan? She already knew him. He was the guardian angel of Eden. She was familiar with him. Can I put it this way? They were friends. Where did Satan come from? He was the most glorious angel in all of God's creation. He was the most beautiful thing, save mankind himself, that God ever made. He is the head angel guarding the mountain of God and guarding God's people, Adam and Eve. He was in an exalted position. He was in the greatest place to live on earth. He was perfect in beauty and moral character. That's where he came from. The third question is, what was Satan's sin? What was Satan's sin? We, we get a broad answer in verse 17 here. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. God doesn't tell us precisely how this happened. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. It doesn't tell us precisely how this happened. But we get closer to understanding if we move to another major text. So turn with me to Isaiah 14. Isaiah chapter 14 here we get the really the, the clearest understanding of Satan's sin. While you're looking at that, I guess this is as good a time as any to explain this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on what's called by theologians theodicy. That is the problem of evil or the origin of evil. I don't have time to do that. That would take weeks and weeks. So let me give you a simple answer. 
Evil cannot originate with God. It originated with Satan, a creature created by God. I'm aware this brings up all kinds of philosophical and theological uh, issues to work through. But for this series, can I put it this way? There is a freight train on the tracks headed towards you at 100 miles an hour. We can either talk about why the freight train is there or we can talk about how to get out of the way. So we're going to talk about how to get out of the way. Once the freight train has gone by, we can talk about how it got there in the first place. But it's there. It is real. Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you were cut down to the ground, who, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. This usurper is called the day star. This is to describe his brilliance and beauty. The Latin equivalent of this Hebrew word was translated by the King James Version as Lucifer. So Lucifer is a Latin version of day star. It's not really a proper name. It's more of a descriptor. If you have been taught in the past to call Satan Lucifer, you would be more accurate to call him day star. And I would encourage you to never, ever call him Lucifer again. And let me tell you why. Because his, his designation as day star, Lucifer, if you prefer, is something that God used to describe him before he sinned. I will never call that being Lucifer because he is no longer the day star. He has many other things that we will look at, but he's not the day star. What happened to Satan is a result of his sin. Paul said in 1 Timothy 3.6 that he was puffed up with conceit. That was his sin, but let me tell you four things that happened to Satan as a result of his sin. First of all, he was banished from friendly access to heaven. He was banished from friendly access to heaven. Chapter 14, verse 12, how you are fallen from heaven. Now, why am I saying friendly access? I'll explain that in a few minutes. The second thing that happened to Satan is a result of a sin. His character was completely corrupted. His character was completely corrupted. The day star, the son of dawn, has now become in Hebrew, Satan, Satan, the opponent, the adversary. It's the name by far that he's called the most in the Bible. He's banished from friendly access to heaven. His character is completely corrupted. There's a third thing that happened to Satan as a result of his sin. His power has been warped for evil purposes. His power has been warped for evil purposes. I heard a preacher once say that when Satan fell, God knocked his power down as well. No, he didn't. There's no place in scripture that says that. His power remains the same. It's just warped. For wrong purposes. Isaiah 14, 12 says he weakens the nations. Isaiah 14, verse 16 says he makes kingdoms tremble. Verse 17, he imprisons humanity with his evil. In fact, the closest thing to the day star that God ever made in the angelic realm was the archangel Michael. Jude, chapter, Jude verse 9 says that even Michael didn't dare fight Satan himself, but instead appealed to the power of God. And so he's banished from friendly access to heaven. His character is completely corrupted. His power has been warped for evil purposes. The fourth thing that happens to Satan as a result, his coming judgment is certain. His coming judgment is certain. Verse 15, But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit, He is the one that causes every grave, every cemetery that you've ever been to is because of Satan. Every person who's ever died is because of Satan, ultimately. And his doom will be to join those that he doomed himself. Now, another little side note here. This isn't the focus in our series. But we should note that when Satan fell from the good graces of God and became the wicked creature that he is today, Revelation 12, 4 tells us that he took one third of the angelic realm with him. Fallen angels, more uh, popularly known as evil spirits or demons in the Bible. Matthew 12, 24, Satan is called the prince of demons. Matthew 24, 41 says that the eternal fire is prepared for the devil, that is Satan, and his angels. 
Now, some of those demons, and we would say probably the majority of them, are currently bound in a pit or in abyss. 2 Peter 2, verse 4 says, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, it's a different word, doesn't mean hell of the future, it means the abyss, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Wait a minute. What demons, what fallen angels are we talking about here in 2 Peter 2? We're talking about the demons, Genesis 6, who produced children with human women and created the race of the Nephilim that God wiped out in the flood. What happened to those demons? They were banished. What's going to happen to them later? Revelation 9, they're going to be let out during the Great Tribulation. Most of the demons currently bound but there are demons now who currently have access to the world to do satan's bidding they're called by paul in ephesians 6 verse 12 the rulers the authorities the cosmic powers spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places that's about all we're going to do on demons i'm not that concerned that you're well versed in the demonic realm if you understand uh, satan you understand the demons you understand that they are his servants Satan is not a being to be trifled with. He's not one to be ignored. And yet we take comfort from the fact that although he is a prowling lion, the sights of the mighty hunter, Jesus Christ, are right on him. And Christ will pull the trigger at the right time. After Satan has accomplished all the purposes for which God is sovereignly using him. That brings us to a fourth question. And really kind of the whole point of this message today is, what is he like? What is he like? What is Satan's nature? I want to give you just kind of two big, broad answers. Two big, broad answers, and we'll put some details under that. The the first big answer to the question, what is Satan like? First of all, he has personhood. He has personhood. Satan is not merely an idea. He is not a philosophical construct. He is not a personification of evil. He is the person personal source of all that is evil. How do we know this? Well, he has all the attributes of personhood. First of all, he has intellect like a person. He has intellect. He spoke with, he tempted Christ. Matthew chapter 4, 2 Corinthians 11 says he schemes to deceive with his incredible intellect. He has emotion like a person. Not only intellect, but he has emotion Revelation 12, verse 12 says that the world should grieve because Satan has come, quote, in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. This isn't wrath like the the holy wrath of God. This is wrath like rageful anger. When Satan couldn't kill Christ after his birth, remember that story? Herod tried to kill the Lord Jesus Christ when he was a child. But when Satan couldn't accomplish that, Revelation 12, 17 says that Satan was furious with Israel. And because of this, he's been making war on the Jews ever since. And all you have to do is read history to see that to be true. He has intellect like a person. He has emotion like a person. He has a will like a person. He has a will. Revelation 20, beginning in verse 7, speaks of a future time when Satan will deceive many nations to come against Jerusalem. He does it with plan. He does it with purpose. He does it according to a will. In fact, in the temptation of Jesus, Jesus told Satan the will of God, but Satan attempted to get Jesus to bend to his will, which, of course, Jesus would not as a faithful human and could not as holy God. And, of course, we've already seen that God speaks to Satan as one speaks to a person. He's not speaking to an idea. One more thing on this personhood. As a creature with personhood, he is morally accountable for his actions. He's morally accountable. God doesn't hold forces or ideas accountable for actions. God doesn't hold animals accountable for actions. He doesn't hold animals. Our our little doggie, I'm at home alone with her the other day, and I'm looking for her, and I see her peering her little head around the door, and she's kind of droopy, which usually means I'm about to find a gift that I didn't expect. And I said, Coco, and she lays down on the ground, kind of goes, like that. Oh, boy, she sinned. But she's never going to appear before God for that sin. She had to appear before me. 
but not before God because she's not morally accountable. But Satan is a person. He has personhood. He is morally accountable. He has personhood in a very real sense. Here's a second big answer to our question, what is he like? He has a powerful but limited nature. He has a powerful but limited nature. Let me give you some ways we know this. He's a creature, first of all. He's a creation of God. God did not create him with corruption, but God did create him. We saw that in Ezekiel 28, 15. speaks of the day of Satan's creation. And so as a, as a creature, this is very important. Listen carefully. He is infinitely less than God. He's infinitely less than God. He is not almost God-like. He is not the closest thing to God without being God. He is in the category of the created, while God alone is in the category of the creator. And there could be no bigger difference. What does this mean? It means that Satan does not possess attributes of God. He's not an almost God. Satan is not all-knowing. Satan is not all-powerful. Satan is not omnipresent Everywhere present. But if I could say this. Satan is not all knowing. But he knows more than you. He is not all powerful. But he's more powerful than you. And he's not everywhere present. But he can be in way more places than you can. And so we take him seriously. He is a creature. There's another way we know he has a powerful but limited nature. He is a spirit being. Like the other angels. He's a spirit being. Satan is one of what we read earlier in Colossians 1.16 of the invisible thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities of the spirit realm. He can appear in physical form in certain ways. He entered into Judas. We know this from John uh, 13. He certainly appeared as a serpent. We know that in the Garden of Eden. But he is a spirit being. What does this mean? It means you have no weapons against him that will work in and of yourself. Any more than you could fight the air. You can't do it. There's a third way we know he has a powerful but limited nature. He is of the cherubim class of angels. The cherubim class of angels. Cherubim are found all through the Bible and they basically have a primary function and that is, listen carefully, to attend to the throne of God. That's what cherubim do. That's what we saw of Satan. The Garden of Eden was the throne of God on earth called the Holy Mountain And Satan was there attending to the throne. The Ark of the Covenant was the throne of God on earth for Israel. The mercy seat, the the lid was decorated with two what? Cherubim. The Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum was decorated on the walls with cherubim. Not as some sort of symbol, but as a reminder of the reality. That wherever the throne of God is, there the cherubim are as well. How else do we know he has a powerful but limited nature? He was the chief of all the angels. He was the chief of all the angels. Ezekiel 28 called him the anointed cherub. What do we see in scripture? Almost every time we see the concept of being anointed, it has to do with anointing what? A king. He was the king of the angels. He was the king of that realm. He has a powerful but limited nature. In another way, he is extremely busy. He's extremely busy. Don't fall for the popular pictures of Satan sitting on a throne of fire somewhere just doing little things here and there. No. Job 1 verse 7, Job 2 verse 3, these verses portray Satan as going to and fro on the earth, moving around. 1 Peter 5 8, where we started, says that Satan prowls around the earth. As a matter of fact, I told you we'd talk about this in a moment. Although he has fallen from being welcome in heaven, he is given access to heaven and is able to go back and forth from heaven to earth and earth to heaven, heaven to earth and earth to heaven. That's what it really means that he goes to and fro. In fact, Job chapters 1 and 2 recounts a conversation between God and Satan in heaven with angels in attendance as well, the fallen angels. They're also, and the fallen angels, get this, are called the sons of God, meaning they were created by God. In 1 Kings 22, we see demonic access to God when God was dealing with wicked King Ahab. 1 Kings 22, verse 21 and 22 says, Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. In other words, I will deceive Ahab. 
And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. You know this, that God never tempts anyone. Yet he uses the wickedness of demons for his own purposes because he was going to judge Ahab for his wickedness. Jesus told Peter, probably one of the most chilling phrases I've ever seen in all the Bible. He said in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Wait, did I hear that right? Did you just say Satan came to you to talk about me? That he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Satan has access to God. Do you see now the importance of the intercessory ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ? He is our mediator. This is so important. You're familiar with Romans 8.34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Now, the question starts in Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? The first answer is not Jesus. Jesus Christ will never condemn you. Why? Well, he died for you. That would make no sense. But there is one condemning you. Revelation 12.10 says that Satan accuses the brothers day and night before the Lord. The intercessory ministry of Christ is vital to you and me, and we're comforted by the words of Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why is that so necessary? Because there is an angel, there is a ruler, there is a power who is accusing you. And I'm going to prove this to you in a few minutes. Satan doesn't even have to lie about you to accuse you. All he has to do is tell the truth. But in Christ, you're safe. Your sins, the truth about you, they've been cast as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103. And someday, Satan's access to heaven will end. Revelation 12, verse 10 says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. That there will be a day, and this happens during the great tribulation, when God says, That's enough, get out, and you will never come back. So, that's what Satan is like. One of the ways that we can be wary, though, and we can understand that what he's like is what the Bible does for us in very helpful fashion, and that is to understand his names, to understand his names. And so that brings us to our fifth question, and I want to walk through this in some detail. What are Satan's names? What are his names? And rather than just going through a long list, I want to give you three categories so that you don't realize we're going through a long list. But here's the three categories. His titles, his descriptions, and his actions. Kind of what he is, kind of who he is, and what he does. His titles, his descriptions, his actions. This isn't completely exhaustive. This is about 90%, though, about, about what the Bible says about the names of Satan. So let's start with his titles. He has titles. He's called the ruler or the prince of this world, the ruler or the prince of this world, depending on your English translation. And who gave him this title? Jesus did. Jesus gives Satan the title in John 12, 31, in John 16, 11. Satan rules the world system of wickedness and sin, which is in direct opposition to God's rule, to God's kingdom. He rules over all who do not belong to Christ and is called in the New Testament the father of all the wicked. So he's the prince of this world, the ruler of this world. He's also called, in Ephesians 2, verse 2, the prince of the power of the air. He's the prince of the power of the air. By the way, this contradicts the notion in some spheres of covenant theology that Satan is currently bound. He's not. He's active. He's given this title. What does it mean that he's the prince of the power of the air? It means that basically everything in the air and under the air is his. That's his dominion. It's a limited empire, but it is a worldwide empire. He's also given the title, the God of this world. 
the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. By the way, side note, what does this tell us? It tells us that Satan is not just some inconvenience that causes things like the stock market to go down or an earthquake or crime. He has access to the mind of people. He has access to the mind because he's the God of this world. Now, this is a little interesting note here. This is a different Greek word for world than the phrase the ruler of this world. This word speaks more to the fact that Satan is the author of all systems of philosophy and belief which are against the gospel. And so we would never say that any human being is neutral. Either you believe the gospel or you are a pawn of Satan. There's no in between. All systems of counterfeit lives and religions are based in the leadership of Satan to make this happen. We praise the Lord that in Christ we're delivered from this blinding influence. We've seen what Paul calls just two verses later in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, never again to be deceived about the gospel. He's also given the title the prince or the ruler of demons. The prince or the ruler of demons, Matthew 12, 24, Luke eleven fifteen. 15. When Jesus' enemies couldn't deny His great miracles, they needed a way to deny that his power came from God. The the leaders of Israel never said Jesus didn't do those miracles. They just didn't know where they came from. They only knew there was only one option, and they were coming from God, so they didn't like that, so they had to come up with a second option. So they said to him, you do these miracles by the power of the prince of demons, that he was in cahoots with Satan himself. Side note, Jesus made a proclamation For saying that to me, you will never be forgiven of your sins, ever. He's also called Beelzebul, Beelzebul. I give you permission to spell that any way you can figure out. Matthew 12, 24, Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. Beelzebul just means a god. It's related to the Old Testament word Baal, But it it could mean, and probably does mean, more specifically, Lord of the Flies. And this is a very poignant picture. Lord of the Flies is the idea of being the Lord over the hordes of demons that swarm the earth. In fact, Revelation chapter 9 pictures the demonic hordes coming up from the abyss as a swarm of locusts. And so Satan is Beelzebul. He is the Lord of the swarms, the Lord of the hordes. One more title, he's called the dragon. He's called the dragon. The book of Revelation calls Satan the dragon 13 times. And in fact, it's in Revelation 12, verse 9, that for the very first time, the serpent who deceived Eve in the Garden of Eden all the way back in Genesis 3, first time in the Bible, Revelation 12, verse 9, that the serpent is identified as the dragon, the devil, Satan. Those are his titles. What about his descriptions? Well, his most common description is Satan. Satan, that's his most common name. Zechariah 3, 1, Old Testament, Revelation 12, 9, New Testament, 50 other places, 52 total in the Bible, he's called Satan. It means the adversary, it means the opponent, and it's a very useful reminder to us that God is continually being opposed by Satan. God's people are being continually opposed by Satan. There is never a point at which where God's people can say to Satan, let's agree to disagree. There's no common ground whatsoever. So he's called Satan. Another descriptor, he's called the devil. The devil, Luke 4, 2, Revelation 12, 9. It's used 32 times in Scripture Greek word diabolos, and it means a slanderer, or how about this? It means one who trips you, one who trips you. This is where we get the idea of the devil made me do it because he's one who trips you. This is the lying aspect of the character of Satan. He defames God. He wants to get believers to defame God, and he defames believers. And by the way, he wants to get you to defame other believers. This is why so many dozens of times in the Bible, Sins of the tongue are addressed because every time you sin with your tongue, you have become the devil. You have defamed God and one another. Here's another description. He's called Belial. 
B-E-L-I-A-L, doesn't matter how you, how you write it. It's just a transliteration. It's a, a phonetic uh, writing in English of a common Hebrew word used 27 times in the Old Testament. But he's called Belial in 2 Corinthians 6.15. And it just means somebody who is wicked, somebody who's vile. Here's the big meaning, somebody who's worthless. He's a scoundrel. Belial is the reason God gave us the death penalty. It is to get rid of people who have become so utterly worthless that they are unredeemable. In fact, the book of Nahum, chapter 1, verse 15, speaks of a future day in Jerusalem when, when peace will be reigning. Nahum 1.15 says, Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless, Hebrew word Belial, pass through you, And here's an interesting note. It goes from something that is personified to a person. He is utterly cut off. Belial. One more description. The evil one. The evil one. Jesus prayed for his disciples. He prayed for us. In John 17, verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. One more set of his names. Names of actions. And these are really useful because this is the theology I really want you to grasp because this tells you what Satan is about. This tells you what he's trying to do. So these are names of actions. He's called the enemy. The enemy. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 39 that the enemy sows weeds in the hearts of men to choke out the seed of the gospel. And who's doing that? That is the devil, the enemy. More directly, and we can just combine two names into one, he's called the liar and deceiver. He's the liar and deceiver. Revelation 12, 9 calls Satan the deceiver of the whole world. I've often heard it said, you know, that Satan is way more active in third world countries. Said by us in a first world country. You know what that means? You just proved that Satan is just as active here. He just simply uses different tactics here. John 8, 44, Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. It does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Did you catch that? There's no truth in him. Now, yes, he tells the truth about you, but what's he trying to do? He's trying to deceive God into banishing you from heaven. That's always wrapped up in a lie. Jesus goes on. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies, which brings us to our third character name or his action name the father of lies all untruth originated with him think about all the times that you're tempted to be untruthful even slightly just say this to yourself i am about to be like satan and then tell the truth when the media gives a definite slant to news to make you believe their narrative that is satanic in origin because he is the deceiver of the whole world. He is the father of lies. There's another action title, again, from John 8, 44. He was a murderer from the beginning. Every grave on planet Earth is his fault. Satan is responsible for the entrance of death into creation. Satan lied to Eve, and as a result of her disobedience and believing him, she ate of the forbidden fruit, and God's promise of Genesis 2, 17 was fulfilled that the day the fruit was eaten, death would come and it did it's another action name this is a long one i think it's 11 or 12 words but it's in the bible he is called the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience he is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience this is in ephesians 2 verse 2 along with the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience simply means that satan is the ruler of all ungodly influences and leads unsaved humanity. He also is called the adversary. Now, we already said the name Satan means the adversary, but he's also using a different Greek word called the adversary, which is slightly different, and it means to be a prosecutor, like a, like a, like a district attorney who has decided to go after you and even conjures up evidence. Is satanic. He is the adversary. Go after you with everything he has. Let me put it to you this way. Satan is not all-knowing. 
But he has a whole lot of demons who can collect information on you. And his accusation before God of you, I would guess, goes back to the first time you ever sinned. And everything he can get his hands on, every bit of evidence, everything you've ever said that was sinful, everything you've ever done that was sinful. I don't believe we can say he has access to our thoughts. God can take care of that part. But he will throw everything he has at you because he's the adversary. Here's another name of action. He's called the tempter. The tempter, Matthew 4, verse 3. The tempter came to Jesus. This means simply the test if you're still going to follow Christ. It's a test. Paul told the Thessalonian church, 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you in our labor would be in vain. Two more. He's called the accuser. We've already seen this. Revelation 12, 10. I told you I would prove to you that Satan tells the truth about you. The accuser is a Greek word which means to reveal the truth. It means to betray you, to use the truth about you against you. And finally, he's called a roaring lion. We end where we began. 1 Peter 5, 8 portrays Satan as dangerous, ready to pounce when you least expect it. Now, I said last week that we would only spend a few weeks on this topic. I feel like because of the seriousness of the times in which we live, I I want you to be well grounded. This is the advantage, by the way, of preaching twice on a Sunday. We can do other things on Sunday night. I had originally planned to do three messages on this topic. Instead, we're going to do messages on this topic. You had one shot to hear it. That was it. Remember I said this series is going to be like a, like a B-52 screaming toward the ground. Its engine's on fire. It's, it's doomed. And yet it will pull up. The fire will be put out. It will drop its payload. And we will win. Here's what we will be looking at. Ten messages. Today, knowing your enemy. Next week, we're going to look at Satan's first attack. Week following, we'll look at Satan in the world today. We'll do Satan, the ultimate deceiver. Fifth message, I'd like to go through Satan's objectives. Sixth message, I'd like to go through Satan's tactics. Now the plane is going to start coming up. Seventh message, Satan versus the gospel. Then I'd like to look at the Christian's defenses. We'll look at the Christian's victory and we'll end on the high note of Satan's coming doom because he's judged about five times in the Bible. We'll go through all of them. And then, timing-wise, the Advent season will be upon us and we will preach Christ. That'll be great. Speaking of which, just for a little perspective, yes, Satan is a very real enemy. He's dangerous. He is not to be ignored. He is not to be taken lightly. Satan may be the ruler and the prince of this world and the prince of the power of the air, but Christ is the prince of peace who will rule the whole world. Satan may be the god of this world, but Christ is the living God who will take this world away from him. Satan may be the prince of demons. Colossians 1 says that Christ is the creator of all the angels, the one who will consign the demons to hell. Satan may be Beelzebul, the lord of the flies, but Christ is Yahweh Sabaoth, lord of the armies of heaven. Satan may be the dragon. Christ is the dragon slayer who will throw him into hell himself. Satan may be the adversary, but Christ is the Son of God, our defendant, our defender. Satan is the devil, the one who trips, but Christ is our rock who holds us up by his mighty right hand. Satan may be Belial, the wicked and worthless one. Christ is the one to whom all worth is due. Satan may be the evil one, but Christ is the one who's prayed that you be kept from the evil one. Satan may be the enemy, but Christ says, I am your friend. He may be the liar and deceiver. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Satan may be the father of lies. Jesus Christ is said to be the everlasting father in Isaiah 9. Satan is a murderer. Christ is the one who will raise you to life. Satan is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Christ is the one who sent the Spirit of God to make you an obedient child of God. Satan is the adversary and the accuser. Christ is your defender and your advocate. Satan may be the tempter. Christ is the one who tempts no one. Satan is a roaring lion, but Jesus is the lion of Judah. 
and he will overcome and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So, be wary? Yes. Be alert? Yes. Be watchful? Yes. Be afraid? No. Let's pray. We will not fear our God for greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Christ wins. He's already won. Satan is in his death throes, inflicting as much damage as he can, but only under the watchful sovereign eye of our sovereign God. Lord, I pray for a man or a woman right now, a boy or a girl hearing this, who is still under the wicked influence of Satan, still a child of the devil, still ensnared in sin, whose eyes are blinded to the beauty of Christ, whose ears are stopped to the gospel of Christ, whose hands commit sin after sin after sin, whose feet go to the wicked places, and whose heart is darkened and lacks the light of Christ. That I would pray that the Holy Spirit even now would open the blind eyes and loose the tongue to praise Christ Unstop the ears to hear and know the gospel. Turn the hands to raise them to Christ and turn the feet to walk to the cross. I pray that this would be the day of salvation when the devil would once again be defeated in the heart of yet another citizen of heaven. We pray these things for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.